This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Horace Dedu from Asimco and Clayton Christensen Institute, who is back for another trilogy on our podcast to discuss modular revolution, startup strategy, Apple and cars. In the second part of the trilogy, we discuss Apple as an anomaly to disruption theory and the current narrative surrounding the company and what Apple's first signs of decline will look like hypothetically. Welcome back. With me here is Horace Dedu, founder of the famous Asimco.com and Senior Fellow of Clayton Christensen Institute. Now, Horace, I want to move to the second part of our conversation, which is about the Apple narrative. I'd like to start this conversation differently, as I've been listening to the different podcasts, including yours, The Critical Path. Apple has always defied gravity with respect to all the theories in disruptive innovation. For that matters, Apple has solved the jobs to be done piece pretty well and with the iPhone, and seems to get the timing right most of the time with your startup strategy. Has there been any attempts to reconcile Apple the anomaly with disruptive innovation? So th- that's actually what motivated, I think, me to join also the Institute, because I felt Apple was an anomaly. And this is something Clay is very keen on in the theory-building aspect of his work, which is that you should study the anomalies, as opposed to a lot of social science, which is driven by statistical modeling, which begins with data sets, and then you're looking for correlations. And so when you look for correlations, outliers spoil the correlations. And so you, you tend to ignore the data points, which are throwing off the curve, right? And, you know, imagine you, you just, and this is very typical of social science. You just do a huge amount of sampling and you do a huge amount of perhaps surveying and then you put these data and then you have a couple of outliers on your plot and you say oh that's just bad data we ended up with these things on the periphery of the of the data sets because somebody dropped the measuring tool or something went wrong and so a lot of people will actually prune those outliers because they destroy data as opposed to create data they destroy value the opposite approach is, in many times in sciences, not just the social science, if you look at the famous discoveries where people just were chasing down a weird thing that happened. Like they had a theory of, of the universe and said, so let's say relativity, and you would see something. I think this is, I'm not an expert in this, but I think there was a there was an anomaly with, with orbit of Mercury. So they, they were observing this at the turn of the century, and they said, you know, Mercury's orbit doesn't follow Newton's laws. There was a measurable difference in Mercury's orbit. And it was actually the relativity that suggested an answer. And the theory of relativity came not because they were looking at Mercury, but they were, you know, this is Einstein was looking at a different question. And the result from it was that, hey, you know, the effect of forget exactly what what the other you probably know better. The problem you are referring to in physics is known as the perihelion of Mercury problem, which lead to the measure of light bending by a massive gravitational object such as the sun. Einstein was able to show the difference of 43 arc seconds with the general theory of relativity, in addition to that his theory actually predict everything else in Newton's theory before. The reason in studying that anomaly allowed Einstein to come up with a different way of thinking of gravity, not as a force, but a manifestation of space-time. Exactly. The point is that Mercury it could have led Einstein to sort of really, really dig down into, into you know, seeing what is wrong with or how do we modify Newton's law. 
And so this is, rather than saying, again, I, I don't want to beat up on this too much, but Apple for me was like this mercury in the sense that it, you had the theory of disruption, which suggested that success came from the low end attacks, right? So you had Toyota came from the bottom of the car market. And so did Volkswagen before them. And so did actually Ford in the very beginning, because everybody was making very posh cars and here was a cheap car. And in fact, the auto industry is filled with low-end entrants that became number one, two, or three in the industry like we have today. Volkswagen is number one, Toyota is number two, and GM, which was actually kind of almost killed by Ford, is number three. And so they were all entrants at some point, and they came from the bottom. And this is the way that Clay had observed a lot of successes. He, he studied the steel industry, the disk drive industry, the PC industry, and all these things. And it was just happening over and over again. And here was Apple launching first the iPod and then the iPhone. And in both cases, Clay said, this is not disruptive. These products are coming at the high end of the market and are just going to get disrupted themselves by someone coming from the bottom. And so the argument was first with the iPod that we would have a cheap MP3 player just taking over. And then with the iPhone that we would have Android taking over. Now it looked like as far as the MP3 market kind of disappeared before we could see that experiment run its way. But at the end of five year period when the iPod was really dominant, they were still at 70% market share. So I think they, the market more or less ended with Apple still number one in that business. Now with the iPhone, we're having now 10 years of the iPhone. And although 90% maybe of the world sales are Android, Apple just cleaned up the market in terms of profit share and also sales volume in terms of dollars of the iPhone. It's just so much more. After 10 years, we don't see signs of decline. We had a pause in the iPhone last year, but it looks like this year it's starting to pick up again. They grew last quarter and are projected to grow this quarter. Very small numbers, but the market is saturated, so you can't really expect huge leaps forward anymore. So after 10 years, now here's the real piece of evidence. We can look at numbers, but the real piece of evidence, I should say, we, we can look at units, but the real evidence is in the pricing. Apple's pricing has never been stronger on the iPhone. They sold 70 plus million units in one quarter, and the average price for those units was $695. It's almost $700 when the very first product that shipped was around $500. The price has actually gone up as volumes have expanded, which is extraordinary and unprecedented. I keep trying to draw attention to this. It demonstrates something, and although the, you know we just talk about economics not being the best description of the market, by looking at the price, you can almost see the secondary effect, which is that people are still valuing the product. And it's fascinating that they've been able to grow, grow the price. When, and I argued this before when I was at Nokia, because at Nokia, we just knew that product pricing was always going to erode within quarters, not years. Within a few quarters, pricing could not be sustained in the market. And so we would have to you know, adjust everything downward. That just hasn't happened with the iPhone. So Apple's the anomaly I wanted to study to not to disprove disruption, but I, I, my expectation was that we would modify it in the sense that it doesn't disprove that Toyota won with the, with the low-end strategy. We can find lots of examples where disruption is true, but we can start to find lots of examples where an entrant comes in with a product that is at the high end of the perceived market, but actually grows it and grows it and grows it. And this is where I came up with this distinction between diffusive and disruptive. Diffusive, which is that early stage phenomenon where you begin, you create a new category, and you identify the new jobs to be done. So let me step into this for a bit. 
during the early stage of an S-curve, imagine the, the sort of the flat bit that then starts to rise. During that stage, you've got to be integrated. You're okay with pricing high. You have customers who are willing to tolerate product, which is imperfect. You have customers who are willing to actually change their lives in order to adopt this product because they themselves are changing the jobs to be done. The early time of electricity was another example. In the early years of electricity, it was very difficult to, to accept that technology, which was driving light bulbs. You had to have a generator in your own house. Only very wealthy people could do that. And it was all often unsafe and could cause fires. And we hadn't sorted out things like DC versus AC. People could get electrocuted. People could start fires. And yet the very wealthy adopted that technology at great expense. So why would they do it? It's because it had a very big impact on their lives. It would allow them to work or entertain at night. And this was such a big deal that they would spend the equivalent of millions of dollars in order to have electricity in their homes, as J.P. Morgan did in, in Manhattan and brought Edison's technology into his mansion. And so you see how that behavior is a very, very much the early adopter behavior. And it's tolerable because this technology is so transformative. But here's the most important thing. When you introduce a technology, it better have a transformative effect. It better redefine the job. It better change behavior. It better completely create a new category. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. And it's going to be, you're going to end up with a trajectory that's going to get quickly disrupted. And this is where, for example, Tesla comes into the picture. So this is the test case for the theory. If you have a technology like an electric car, and in particular, that incarnation of the electric car that we have in, in Tesla. Is this actually creating a new type of behavior? Is it a new category? Is it completely transformative? Are people who are using the vehicle changing their behavior, adapting their behavior in order to accommodate this product, which has an enormous, enormous impact on their lives? Or is it another car? If it's another car, then other ma manufacturers are going to compete effectively with it because they're just kind of come along in their slow way and then swamp that business with production over capacity and pricing. Or is it so different that it's like the iPhone where it actually redefines what a phone is? We went from the phone being a product that you talk on to a product if you look at. That, that distinction was made possible by the decisions that Apple made, and in particular, making large screens and putting huge batteries on these things and making them a computer. And in that sense, they changed behavior as far as phones are concerned, and then added new behaviors when, we came, when it came to social media and, and Snapchat and other things that we use phones for and don't use computers for anymore. Well, we never did. This is a, a mobile-first strategy comes from the mobile computing actually being, quote unquote, better than desktop computing in certain aspects. But this same pattern, so, so study the iPhone, understand how it changed telephony, understand how it changed computing, understand, therefore, that it created suddenly new architectures, new ways of protecting your business by creating uh, the moat that people talk about in terms of Apple being protected with its ecosystem, with its apps, with its services. All those things are possible because the product redefined what a phone is. If it had been a better phone, Nokia would have matched that product. Nokia and, and Motorola would have been risen to the challenge and completely blocked Apple's success in the long term. That simply was not the case. The product was so different that the incumbents could not adapt themselves 
to make it better in the dimensions that it needed to go. And so the same question that you apply to the car industry, and this is where the debate is going on with respect to Tesla, is like, is it really a very different product? Does it have different, different economics? Does it have different ecosystems? Are users changing their behavior? Are they abandoning certain things they used to do? Or is it simply a substitutive product that does does an even better job at being a car? If it does a better job, makes more money for uh, as a car uh, a business, then incumbents are s- so delighted with it and are going to just chase it and, and run it down. And it's it's not going to... You know, and always one of the litmus tests is that you see a new thing like this and is the incumbent allergic to it? They may want it, but they just can't make it happen. Whereas, you know, that's something certainly Nokia and Motorola couldn't do with the iPhone. But if you look at cars and now you're saying, wait a minute, does any car maker look at Tesla and say, we can't do that? They typically say, well, we, it doesn't make money yet, but it's certainly something we wish we could do. And uh, certainly we love their customer base and so on. That's really what how some of this it relates to the story. I have some questions on the car, but I'm going to reserve that for the next part of the conversation. We will take an advertisement break for the moment. Innovation and value generation remained at the forefront of the fourth edition of the IoT Asia Conference, which returns on the 29th to 30th of March at the Singapore Expo exhibition halls. Join the three-track conference to learn about the latest developments and initiatives from top leaders and leading lights in the field. Use the code IOT7AASIA to get a 10% discount off the conference rates except academy. Coming back, I want to go back to the narrative on Apple. In recent years, we basically have two ends of the spectrum that offer their crystal ball gaze to Apple's future. Either it's doomed or it's going to be very bright. My view is that It falls somewhere in the middle and more in the positive than most people predict. Where is this narrative falling to and what is your assessment to Apple's performance in the past few years? Okay, that's a huge, huge area. I've been thinking about this and how to synthesize it. Let me try it this way. I put up a graph once in a while called GAMSA or GAMSA. And that was Google, Apple, Microsoft, Samsung, and Amazon. These were the big companies that I wanted to put next to each other to sort of evaluate on the same page. Uh, Now I changed Samsung for Facebook only because these are now the five largest companies in the world by market cap place. So again, it's Google, Apple, Microsoft, Facebook, and Amazon. So I just, nothing against Samsung, but I just putting Facebook in allowed me to make this a list, not of just some five interesting companies, but the five largest companies in the world by market capitalization. And they're all tech companies. It all happened last year that Facebook joined that list And therefore, now we have five tech companies, five giant companies, five spectacularly successful companies as the the five largest businesses in the world. Now, when I put those graphs together, I reveal them over, you know, I give a talk about it and I I reveal them over a certain, through a certain narrative. And I sort of start with Google and I put Microsoft next to Google and I put put Apple next to them. And and I build this, this, this picture over time because it's a very dense picture. It shows revenues and profitability, and also all the sub-segments for all the businesses. So what are the components making up the revenues? And it's all on the same scale, and it all goes back all the way to 2007. So you're looking at an enormous amount of data on one page. And then I asked the audience, I said, which of these companies do you think the market 
thinks is going to be successful in the long term. So again, back to the question of timing and longevity and sustainability. And I rephrase the question by saying one measure, very simple measure of the sustainability of a business is its P-E ratio. Because the P-E ratio suggests the number of years, very simply, the number of years, the profits of that business are going to be maintained. If you take away the cash, you have an even more accurate picture of the cash flows of that business as the market sees them. So the market is making a bet through the pricing mechanism of the shares about how long this business is going to last. And so this P-E ratio gives a yield. One over the yield is the number of years. And so this is a very simple arithmetic kind of thing. And when you look at that, you see that all of these companies, it is a pattern. You have Google at 35 or something at that, that level. You have a Microsoft at 35. You have Facebook in the 50s. And then you have Amazon incalculable because their profits are almost negligible. But on the cash flow basis, also tremendously high numbers in terms of their multiple. And then there's Apple. And Apple's number is very low. It's about 15 or less. We've even had it go as far as low as 10. And if you strip out the cash, it's in the single digits. So you're looking at a, the way I, I sort of dramatize it is a, you know, the market believes that Apple is going to be shutting off the lights in about seven years. And I'm not talking about decline. I'm talking about ending all profits in seven years. That's what the pricing suggests. It makes, let's say, for the sake of argument, $50 billion this year. And then what the calculation of the price would suggest is it makes $50 billion for seven years. And then it makes zero billion dollars for infinity thereafter, which means technically that you could shut it down because it's not going to make any more money. It's, you just liquidate it, give money back to the shareholders, whatever's left in terms of assets, and move on. That is how the company is priced. So then I put, because the shock of this revelation comes from having seen these pictures, and the picture of Apple is just it's towering over everyone else in terms of revenue and in terms of profitability. So here's a company in the middle of the four that looks spectacular in terms of growth, spectacular in terms of profitability, spectacular in terms of its sheer size. It is number one, after all, from all of those five. And yet it's the one that's least likely to survive. That is what the market is saying. And so I said, this is a paradox. I cannot explain entirely why the market is so pessimistic on Apple. Maybe it's sort of the what goes up must come down. There have been many people suggesting that it's you know, it's in a fragile marketplace. It's got all kinds of difficulties. And I summarize it as follows. I said, if you look at all the other companies, Google, Microsoft, Facebook, and Amazon, you could argue that they're all de facto monopolies. Now, be careful here. It's not a de jure monopoly, meaning it's not that some agency has declared them that way. It is not a monopoly in the strict economic sense. But it's a de facto monopoly because when you think about it, what alternatives are there really to Google? What alternatives are there really to Microsoft in the enterprise? And what alternatives are there to Facebook in its market? And what alternatives are there to Amazon? Is any venture capital or any capital whatsoever being allocated to alternatives? Is anyone agreeing that there's a challenger out there, even foreseeable challenger, never mind current challenger? They are de facto monopolies, and this is one reason why in the average person's mind, and that, that includes the average investor's mind, these are safe companies. They're going to be around for a while. They've just established a huge market position, a very, very defensible position, and no threat is visible. That is a very simple way to do strategy, and it's the competitive analysis of the average man. 
And then even people like Warren Buffett would argue that that's how he makes decisions. You know, Coca-Cola is he discovers what is their moat, what is their defensibility. So he avoided tech companies for a long time because he couldn't figure out how they were defensible as businesses in the long, long term. And But the average person just looks at it and they could read the newspapers or read online. And every day you would hear how, how a juggernaut Facebook is and how strong Google is, how no alternatives are available for any of those companies, except for Apple. In the case of Apple, the narrative, the discussion is always how there is a killer just about to, to show up, how the, there are the, the fragility. And, and, and the way I, I sort of, again, dramatic, dramatize a little bit, I said, if you were to name a company on this planet, I could tell you how they compete with Apple. It doesn't matter what company it is. It could be UPS or it could be a retail business. And I would say they compete with Apple because someone at some point in time will write a news story saying how Apple is vulnerable from Hollywood, from logistics, from automotive, from every single sector of the of the world and every single reason or every country has a reason to attack Apple. It's amazing how Apple is seen as being the focus of attention of every competitor on the planet. And this is what, what so it is in fact the anti-monopoly. It is the most fragile business, you know, and then people say, every time you, you make an argument that look at the profitability of Apple, they say, oh, that's exciting because someone will want to grab that from them. That's exciting because that is makes them vulnerable. So whatever you say, oh, the iPhone is really strong. And the answer is immediately, well, that just shows you how weak Apple is. You're always reading everything about Apple as a sort of an opportunity for it to be dismantled, for it to be attacked, for it to be, for that to be taken away from them. That's how Apple is perceived. Very rarely do you hear anyone say, wow, Apple is a juggernaut. It cannot be, no one can touch Apple. That's impossible. I've never even heard those arguments. And sometimes if they do appear, they're very convoluted and not very believable, frankly. And most people say, come on, that doesn't make any sense. And so that was what drew me to this paradox. And so, so I ask, here's a company that has actually been around longer than those guys. It's been around longer than Google. It's been along about the same as Microsoft. and certainly been along longer than Amazon and Facebook. Okay, so that's number one. For some company that's really fragile, it seems to have outlasted everybody else. Secondly, this narrative of failure and constant threat has been around forever as well. So we've seen the company always being seen as a challenged company. And so it's something then you start to see a pattern and you start to say, hold on a second, maybe we're not observing this correctly. And so I came up with this term and I didn't come up with it. I came up with the application of the term anti-fragile, the idea that actually uh, because it's not a monopoly in the, any, anyone's mind, including their own. So inside a company, they don't think that they're a monopoly contradicting everyone else. They really feel like they're under siege. But that also makes you stronger to some degree. And it's imperceptible just how it makes you stronger. But being under attack all the time does make you somewhat be more driven towards excellence in some way. And so that's one psychological argument. But the other thing that I started thinking about, this is something I have yet to write up, is that if you were to ask an economist about monopolies, they'll say, well, monopolies are able to drive up their prices and companies which are under a lot of competitive pressure are forced to drive down their prices, right? This is obvious. A monopoly has no competition and can increase its pricing indefinitely uh, or until regulated. A, a highly competitive environment commoditizes rapidly, so pricing collapses. 
But what did we just talk about? How Apple's iPhone has reached a new record price after expanding and expanding and expanding and growing tremendously and being the biggest franchise and having a billion units sold. It's priced at a high, a highest point in its history. And how, what we also hear about Google the other day is that it, the pricing of its product, which is called its cost per click, is now at the lowest it's ever been. And also that the margins for Amazon are super low and that Facebook is about to have some pricing pressure on its product as well. And certainly Microsoft has had pricing pressure in the move to mobility. So we have another weird thing is that these perceived monopolies are forcing their prices down, whereas the perceived vulnerable company is increasing its pricing. And how could you have not only the highest uh, price you've ever had, but if you look at the pricing of the iPhone at $695 and you compare it to the next biggest name in mobile, which is Samsung, never mind to everyone who is following behind, but you have pricing of Samsung. I just tweeted yesterday that the pricing of Samsung's phones is $182 versus $695. So this is a company that is number two and the only other company making any profit in the industry beyond anything marginal. They're certainly not able to price at Apple's level. So how is it then that the most vulnerable company has three times the price of its nearest competitor and everyone else who is a monopoly is, for, is having their pricing come down? It's a, something, you know, the paradox gets more and more interesting. This is about the narrative. You asked about the narrative. And the narrative, if you open your browser every day and read about Apple, is that Apple is vulnerable, that Apple is under siege, that Apple is, is threatened. Maybe the way to solve this paradox is that actually writers get paid to write these negative stories because it actually draws more attention. So it's the sort of the dog bites man story. So you always want to write the contrarian story because it's going to attract more attention. But it just kind of gets old. And if every story is contrarian, is it still contrarian? I don't see any opposite point of view. So I don't want to believe that it's a media conspiracy because they're drawn by financial reward to, to write these stories. If you were to survey people in the street, I think you'd see a common perception of the business. And so this is why from a, an analysis of the business and in, in terms of, of its fundamentals, an analysis of the business in, for, in terms of its pricing power, growth, and everything else. What I say is Apple's anti-fragile. That explains some of it. But it also explains, I think that what we're missing and what I'm searching for is an explanation of how it's able to, uh, it's actually a monopoly of its own right. So this is the real interesting point. And I, I made this once or twice. I said that monopolists are also very vulnerable. They tend to be invulnerable for a long time because they have no competition. But then usually disruption, disruption suggests that something comes up that is like a virus attacking an elephant. It's not exactly another elephant headbutting this one and sort of defeating it in battle. It's usually that the big are undermined by something very small and something very imperceptible at first. And so that's been the story of, of disruption. And when you, on the other hand, like Apple is always attacked by insects and bugs and it's surrounded by uh, pathogens. Uh, it's able to build antibodies. It's able to build a lot of defense mechanisms against that because it is always under attack. So you can see it with that metaphor, if you wish. Fundamentally, I think that's one of the interesting aspects of the business. And the narrative, the narrative is maybe changing now. And it's not changing because of these very, very sophisticated metaphors. It's changing because people are observing services. Services business is attached to the iPhone business. So it's not independent. 
But at the same time, it's growing very steadily, and it will double, as they claim, in four years, which is essentially sustaining 18% growth for the next four years. And that's not a hard claim because it's it's been sustaining 18% growth for several years already. I, I haven't measured it, but probably at least five years, we've seen that sort of growth in services business. And it's not off of the iPhone sales number, but it's off of the iPhone usage number or install base. And the iPhone and iOS in general usage number has been growing steadily as well because these products are in use longer and they are reused even after their normal lifespan are ended. And so you end up with a secondary market and so on. And so that's why it's very likely we have a billion iOS devices in use as we speak today. We had a billion devices last year and that base has grown by double digits according to management. So if you took out last year's Mac and other products that were a part of their device definition and just focused on iOS. So we can argue that you know iOS is now at a billion active users. So that base uh, has grown in the last year, even though the, the iPhone number has flattened or decreased slightly. And so you have this continuing base of users. And that's one thing that maybe people are waking up to and saying, oh, wait a minute, these billion users aren't going to go anywhere. Actually, Apple's customers are highly loyal and Apple's customers are recurring revenues. And I've been saying this for a few years, but suddenly now people are starting to catch on. And now that means that those people will not only be buying more iPhones, but actually paying for services. And that's the piece of the business that is waking people up to this effect. You can say all day long that you have high loyalty and you have high satisfaction ratings for your business. People never write a story about that, but they might write a story about the fact that services now is a top 100 company in its own right. That's why suddenly that services business has woken people up and saying, hold on a second, maybe Apple isn't as vulnerable as it seems. Maybe something else is going on. And this is why, as far as Apple's concerned, I'm trying to be uh, one or two steps be in front of that narrative to sort of explain that really what's happening is much more complex. There's a brand question. There's a loyalty question. There's a pursuit of superlatives or excellence that ties all this together. And I think if you were to ask, it's like talking to Apple people is like talking to a good football player or soccer player. And you try to ask them, what makes you so good? How did you manage to get so many goals or so many touchdowns? And they're just, that's a very dumb question for them. They said, well, you know, I just threw the ball and it went in the goal. You know, how do you analyze, how do you self-analyze? You're doing an amazing job as an athlete and you've trained your whole life for that. You kind of ask somebody the technique or the trick. Is there a trick for you putting, kicking the ball into the net? What did you do? No reporter even asked this question. How, how did you hit that ball with your foot? They will just say, well, I just hit the ball with my foot and went in the net. Right. So you're not going to get those answers by asking the company directly. Management will say things like we make the best product. That's a good answer, but it, it's not going to satisfy the analyst in me. So anyway, long story, I guess. I should add to the point that the reason why Apple is so vulnerable to the bad narrative, a recent article on Apple Insider editorial made the point that Apple encouraged the bad narrative by being secretive to their product launches and made some mistakes in their communication. I have a question which I always wanted to ask you via the critical question in your podcast. I can't get a question because I happen to sit in the wrong time zone. So, Chorus, forget about the narrative, forget about the current perception of Apple. What are the first signs hinting that Apple is beginning to decline? So, what would be a signal that Apple would be starting a decline? Is that the question? I don't believe that they are failing. The Apple is doomed narrative does not work with their current business performance and the huge stack of cash they hold. 
If you were to project this to 10 to 15 years later, and I get a chance to ask you, what will the first symptoms that you start to see Apple's decline, similar to a doctor making his or her first diagnosis? What would that be? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's probably a more interesting question to ask you, actually. It is, it is. I ask myself this question every day because I think is you know, what would be the signal? Because I get a lot of people saying that, look, you're just being an eternal optimist with Apple. You're constantly being uh, defending the company and so on. You know, that would be intellectually dishonest for me to do that. I have to have a, a reason why I think that they're strong, whereas others see them as weak. And so then I have to, you know, do a counterfactual, I guess, or what would it take for me to believe that the opposite is true? And so the way this would work is so that if your theory says that the cause of Apple's success is that they are integrated when they need to be integrated and modular when they're, they need to be modular, if that they're focused on the job to be done and that they are always in a state of high degree of competition, which forces them to be very, very attentive to the product. Those are the maybe the three main forces that I think are keeping the company strong. So you have to ask the opposite. You know, what would be the forces that would be indications that none of those were true? So if, for example, they were in a position of strength. Let's start with the last one, the anti-fragile argument. If they're complacent, and this is something that you need to watch very carefully, the signals are very weak. So in markets that they were number one in, and I think the only one I can think of is actually the iPod. If in the iPod market, they would have, this is a great business. We're going to milk this to its conclusion and we're going to build our business around the iPod. So that would have been a signal in 2005. And in 2005, they said, okay, we're going to stop developing the Mac. We're going to double down on the iPod and then we're going to build a huge music business on top of it. And we're going to acquire the music labels or do whatever is necessary. It's sort of, you know, Apple would become the music company. Had they done that, it would have been over, right? Because they wouldn't have developed the iPhone. They wouldn't have developed the iPad. And they still have the Mac, which is actually a growing business, far bigger than it was back then. And so that would have been an interesting signal is that they they would declare themselves as the iPod company. So fast forwarding to today, I would say if they declare themselves to be the iPhone company, then it's over. If they ever came out with a public statement or they, you know, they said we're a telecommunications company or whatever, any of those things that would sort of focus on a single product, a single category, redefine themselves as a business. Instead, they sort of keep things very vague as far as what they're going to do next. They're not married to the, any one product. Sometimes Apple is accused of being a one trick pony or single bet that it's a single product company, but it's been a single product company as long as it existed. It's just that, that the product has changed. There used to be the Apple II company, then there were the Mac company, then there were the iPod company, and now the iPhone company. And people forget that. They still say it's the iPhone company. But does Apple believe it's the iPhone company? I think that Apple doesn't believe it's the iPhone company. Apple is the Apple. And what Apple is, is an engine for creating new iPhones or whatever comes next. Maybe it's managing a portfolio of things. Maybe it's an experienced company. It's a lot of different things, and they just keep being flexible about that. So that's one thing to watch out for, sort of being focusing on markets and focusing on a single product and redefining themselves accordingly. That would be a very clear 
signal that, that they're vulnerable. What were the other things as far as modularity integration, for example, if they were to say, okay, so now you see how there's, it's sometimes invisible, the dichotomy, but they're very deeply modular because of the way they manufactured, because of the way they have ecosystems. So here would have been a very big flag against Apple. If in 2008, as Steve Jobs was actually saying at the time, we will not open the iPhone to third-party developers, it would have meant that it would have been completely an integrated product in the sense that solutions that may reside on the product could not be built collaboratively. What we end up with today is that the iPhone is the iPhone, but on top of it, you have all of these services and, and, and stacks and stacks of of things like Facebook is on top of the iPhone and, and Facebook's business is on top of the iPhone and they don't pay any money to Apple at all. So they allowed Facebook to make a huge killing on top of the iPhone. They allowed even Google to make a huge killing on top of the iPhone and hundreds and thousands of others, in fact, right? So, but if Apple had chosen in 2008 not to open that up, it would have been over for the iPhone. Without a shadow of a doubt, the iPhone would have been dead by 2010. But instead, they did open up. And that means that they were willing to be modular as far as the interface between the apps and the operating system. So they did an SDK. They did all these thousands of APIs. And in fact, what's interesting is, is if you were to look at it from a historic analysis point of view, a lot of people said that Steve Jobs was against it and then he changed his mind. What actually was happening dynamically internally, because you can look, the, the evidence is within the, the software itself. It was possible to jailbreak an iPhone before 2008 and you could build apps for it. In order to do that, the hooks were there. The hooks and the, all the things, all the elements for developers were there already. So the product was architected from the beginning with the, the ability to make apps. In fact, internal apps, the things that it shipped with were built as apps. They were built by internal developers, but they were built as apps. So the, the operating system had the ability to run apps from day one. And it was architected that way for way before the launch of the product. And so it's pretty clear to me that, that they had this ability. So Steve only decided to flip the switch and say, okay, now we allow developers. He was very cautious, very protective of the product, which is, again, one of these things you need to be flexible about. You don't start off as Apple Watch did, for example. Okay, everybody write apps for this thing, even though it wasn't ready in version one. And so the iPhone 1, probably from Steve's point of view, and also because of the operators and all the other dynamics in the industry, didn't want to open that up yet. But once they did, it just took off. So, so again, the signal to watch for is an inflexibility when it comes to modular versus being flexible modular integration. So this idea that Apple does those two things at the same time is a strong signal. And the other thing is about brand, attention to detail. One thing that I would say about Apple that would scare me would be if they suddenly decided to be a broad portfolio company. Now, what I point out is that, and I learned this by studying the luxury industry when the watch came out, I was like thinking to myself, how can you be, what does it mean to be a luxury brand? And what I realized, and some folks who published uh, stuff like this taught me a lot. Basically, a luxury brand, as I defined it, is a product that is, is a series of products that never is never mediocre. So you're just always hitting or putting out product that is exceptionally good, right? So you don't say, okay, in order for us to gain market share, we're going to launch a mid-range product, and we're going to launch a low-end product, and we're going to broaden the portfolio. So like, for example, 
Samsung and Nokia were both examples of this, where they will literally have hundreds of products to cover every single niche in the market. You cannot, that is incompatible with a luxury brand. If you, if you take the argument of, say, LVMH and all these, uh, which are actually giant industrial companies, but they're brand oriented, they simply say, no, we only ship product that's exceptionally great and people are always going to be safe in buying it and getting that brand image. So if you're going to pick up a Louis Vuitton bag, you know it's a Louis Vuitton bag because it's not going to be a, a compromised bag and then, you know, it's not going to have cheapness to it in any in, in any angle. And so Armani, for example, and I remember this from the 90s, Armani had created a, a medium brand called Armani Exchange, and it was going to be a low-end version of Armani, and that completely killed the value of Armani. You can't do that. And so one thing to watch for in terms of, and that's for luxury, but premium is a slightly different categorization. I wouldn't say Apple couldn't go to the middle or low, but basically you just don't want to be broad. You want to be focused enough so you're saying to, to the market, look, we're all about shipping great product. And by the way, this is a suboptimal. Let's be very clear about this. You're not making as much money with that strategy as you would if you go to a broad strategy. And this is, or I should say, you're not shipping as much product as the way Samsung and to many ways, Sony and, and Nokia and other great companies did in the past is they would optimize for reach. And as a result, you decrease brand value. So what does Samsung mean now? It doesn't mean, in some cases, maybe it means good product, but in some cases it means okay product, in some cases it means shabby product. And the same was true for Nokia, and the same was true for Sony. But as soon as they went into these other segments, they suddenly the whole brand image became weak. And as a result, the, the company was more vulnerable, in my opinion. It looks like it's stronger, but it's actually more vulnerable. So this is, again, the question of Apple as far as the brand is concerned. I think that what I would look for as a signal is that, you know, let's just be launching okay products and let's launch products that have lower customer satisfaction. That is simply not, it hasn't been happening yet. The numbers they cite, maybe, maybe I would say that there are some, some candidates. Okay. Maybe if you looked at the Apple TV product and you would say, well, that's a cheap product. It's only $150. It doesn't scream of quality. It doesn't have a lot of content on it. And a lot of people are very down on the Apple TV as a, as a whole, but that's always been something of a hobby for Apple. So it's okay to experiment with stuff like that. And, you know, Apple Watch was another thing that in the beginning didn't quite take off, but it's very early stages. And a lot of these things depend on other things. So it's fine to run those experiments without really damaging the brand, I think. So it's not an absolute scale I'm treating this with, but it, it's something I'm, I'm watching carefully and I would watch carefully. And people say, well, services is another one of these things or that they don't do a good job on software in general, software quality declining, series not good enough and all these things. The question there is, is are they getting better? Are they actually part of an ecosystem? Is the experience entirely dependent on that? Or are they, is something else that's causing the buyer to buy the product? So it, it's kind of a bit fuzzy as to whether these are counting as products or experiences are significant enough to change behavior of, of the user. I, it's, it's a little bit fuzzy, I must admit. And, and when I, whenever I cite this theory, I get a lot of criticism because people say, yes, what about this and what about that? So sure, certainly there's some noise in the system, but that's what I look for. Thank you, Horace, for the second part of the conversation. And we'll be back in the next episode for the final part on the conversation. And it's all going to be about cars.